Hey everyone, before this podcast begins, we want to tell you about some other arts-related podcasts you're going to love. They are The Conduit Music Podcast, Artsville, Gringo and the Man, Art World Horror Stories, and Not Real Art. On these action-packed podcasts, you'll hear experts talk about creativity, design, the music biz, the art world, visual art, American craft, Chicano art, street art, graffiti, and even stand-up comedy. So be sure to find and follow these great arts podcasts today. Now, back to your regularly scheduled programming. Warning, the Not Real Art Podcast is intended for creative audiences only. The Not Real Art Podcast celebrates creativity and creative culture worldwide. It contains material that is fresh, fun and inspiring and is not suitable for boring old art snobs. Now, let's get started and enjoy the show. Greetings and salutations, my creative brothers and sisters, and welcome to the Not Real Art Podcast, where we celebrate creative culture and the artists who make it. I'm your host, Erin Yoshi, and today we have a special guest, Ashara Ekundayo. Ashara is a Black feminist, interdisciplinary creative arts leader committed to an intersectional framework of social transformation that expands the influence and impact of the arts and culture on racial equity, gender, and justice, and environmental literacy, one that necessitates a practice of recognizing joy in the midst of struggle. So without further ado, let's get into the episode. Hello, Not Real Art family. We're so excited because today we have Ashara Ekundayo. It is such an honor to have you here. I feel like I've seen your journey in little tidbits along the way. So thank you so much, Ashara, for being here with our Not Real Art family. Oh, hello, Erin. It's so great to be here with you as well. And I appreciate the invitation. So let's get it in. Yeah, let's do it. So, you know, I wanted to ask you, could you tell me a little bit about some of your early memories as a gatherer? Because you gather people and I feel like people who gather, it's a personality. So do you remember some of the first times you started gathering people? Oh, I love that definition, gatherer. You know, sometimes those of us who do that are also called connectors, right? So the gatherer, the convener, hmm, early memories Probably when I was in elementary school, I think that I would be the one who would gather folks like around the art table, honestly, around the the idea like we're going to make something together. We're going to do this collage. And, you know, I would invite you go over there and get this magazine stack over here and you go get the good colors and the good crayons over here. And who's got the really good sharp scissors, the good scissors, that kind of thing. And So there would be this opportunity for us to create something together. I I think that would be the first time I remember that I was convening folks and convening us to make art, (laughs) you know, and at that time, it just felt like something really fun. And it was probably very important to me at the time. But for the most part, it had to be fun for me to want to do it because I was an extremely shy child. So it was actually kind of strange that that would be the only place where I would I think, put myself out there and be the one inviting people to come talk to me because I really rather would be alone (laughs) at that age. I can understand that. Walk us through a little bit of some of your early art memories. Like what was some early inspiration for you about the arts? Well, you know, I grew up in Detroit, Michigan, off the hills of the civil rights movement. And my mother was a creative educator, social worker. And my father, who just turned 81 years old, is a practicing artist and still paints every day. And so I was raised by two artsy parents. That influenced me and it influenced uh, and invited me to do whatever I wanted to do. You know, I didn't have the parents that say, you have to go and be a doctor or be a lawyer. They were totally fine with, you can be an artist, you can be a teacher, you can do anything you'd like to do. 
But there was also lots of memories of going to the symphony as a child, going to the theater, going to the arts festivals in downtown Detroit and Hart Plaza, growing up in Motown and being surrounded by music, not just Motown music, but rock music, punk music, Afrobeat music, traditional music. And I think the combination of the visual art and the musical sonic artwork, creativity, you know, opportunities were huge. You know, they were huge to grow up with Parliament Funkadelic and Nina Simone and the Jacksons and Diana Ross down the street. I mean, all of that was totally acceptable. And at the same time, you know, being dropped off at the library in Midtown, it wasn't called Midtown at that time, but Midtown Detroit, where the frescas of Frida Kahlo and Diego Rivera were very much friends of mine. Like I was literally left at the museum and left at the library and I would lie down on the floor and just study them. All of those things were influential, but totally normal, you know, for a kid like me growing up in a city like that. I love it. That's amazing. I love how you said like, you know, it's like they were so in your ethos that they were just a part of growing up. And all of that is such rich. It's like rich inspiration, rich culture. That's amazing that you, you know, that you were blessed with that upbringing. Talk us through a little bit about your trajectory. So did you end up, did you go to school? Did you end up studying art? How did that journey look like for you? I lived in Detroit until I was, you know, teenager, about 14 years old. And then my mother moved my sister and I to Denver, Colorado, which is where she was from. So huge culture shock, huge shift in population and vibration, shocking in a way that was really disturbing to a teenager who, of course, had grown up with a particular kind of mindset and an environment that was very Black and very proud to a place where I felt very lost. That said, you know, I finished college there where I did not go to art school and I went to graduate school. I did not go to art school, but I decided that I would step into this idea that I wanted to be a curator. And this was something that I really understood at a very young age. I remember walking to a gallery, walking through a gallery with my father at some point and asking him, who is it that decides to what art is on the wall? Who is it that gets to make that decision? And he said, oh, that person is the curator. And I told him at that very young age, well, that's what I want to be when I grow up. Because I had already realized that there was some power in that that position, that that was important, that if you got to be the one who said, this is what is valuable, or this is what is beautiful, then you could shape a particular kind of narrative around what was acceptable and how you wanted to be and what your identity was. And so growing up and going to school and going to college and graduate school allowed me to say, you know, instead of writing a paper, I'm going to produce a film festival. So I would say, you know, on my trajectory of this academic world that I had stepped into, there was this artist or this curator that was burgeoning, you know, that whole idea of what does it mean to like live in the art world, even after I had decided that I wasn't going to get a PhD. And so much of the art sector or the traditional or so-called high art sector is fed by the academy. So while I was in the academy, I decided that instead of writing a paper for my thesis, I would curate an art exhibition. And I did that not only for my undergraduate thesis, but for my graduate thesis, I curated a film festival and was really supported by a wide range of artists, mostly women. In fact, Dr. Maya Angelou was part of my graduate thesis work, (laughs) as well as poets such as Nikki Finney, other filmmakers from Europe and from the continent of Africa were also in support of my work. And that really kind of like gave me not only permission, but it gave me a, a tool belt with some successes on it. And so you know what happens when you have a lot of successes is that you're willing to take more risks. You're willing to fail. And so I had things that didn't go so well and things that went great. And, you know, you kind of balance that out. And so that gives you courage. And that courage has given me permission to like keep going forward with various kinds of endeavors that are creative, entrepreneurial, activist, organizing work. And so, you know, at this point, (laughs) I've founded and co-founded several different endeavors that support creative art practice, social practice, And right now, really focused very much on a a Black feminist, Afrofuturist politic 
that is, I'd say, rooted in literary art, rooted in movement art, rooted in, you know, visual and new media art, but really rooted in justice and is joy informed. That's the work that I'm centered on right now. I love it. I love it. And tell us a little bit about that project. What is the name of it? Where is it available to witness? So the current iteration of my curatorial practice is called Artist as First Responder. It was initially a platform that I was investigating. It was a a term that I didn't hear until after the September 11th incident in New York City. I'd never heard the term first responder. But what happened is that I started to really wonder, who is it that really does show up first when a crisis happens? Like, really, what happens in our communities, in our families? In my family, it was always the artist that showed up first. And it might not be someone who called themselves artist, but it was definitely someone who showed up with their most creative, brilliant idea, their innovation, and that that innovation saved the day. It healed everyone. It brought folks together. It allowed everyone to take a breath and to reconsider. So over the years, you wonder, oh, you keep doing the same job over and over. It didn't really matter what art genre it was. I was still being the curator and I was still witnessing artists showing up when something was really powerfully and poignantly like problematic in community. So, you know, fast forward to Occupy, the Occupy movement, fast forward to Me Too, fast forward to the insistent violence against Black bodies nationally and internationally committed by people who are said to serve us and to protect us, right? So we're talking about police violence and we're talking about the blatant killings of so many Black people. What we saw in 2020, in the midst of a a global pandemic, in the midst of a, a global shutdown, a shelter in place, where people who had the privilege of being able to sit still and reconsider their lives also had the demand made on them to go out into the street, to raise your voice, to raise your fist, to say, you know, not on my watch and to figure out what that meant as well. And so at the time I was living full time in Oakland, California, and the streets became this massive, beautiful gallery of artwork. And so we saw all kinds of conversations happening on the boarded up panels of the banks, you know, of the community centers, of the coffee shops. And there's a whole conversation and a whole funding stream that has become very popular in this country called trauma-informed, just trauma-informed everything. (laughs) And so we see the trauma-informed happening, but what we also know is that artists show up first in celebration. And so the work that I'm focused on right now is joy-informed as well that we show up and use joy as a tool, as a resistance, as a mechanism for healing our communities. So artist as first responder is the work that I'm focused on right now. I love it. It, It's so powerful. I think there's so many things that really spoke to me about what you're saying is, you know, oftentimes it's just, you see artists respond to these traumatic, incredibly moving moments and put their stance very publicly. And I think it's a really, really beautiful idea to bring it together. I really love your six-point philanthropic interactive arts platform. Could you explain a little bit about that? Yes. So, you know, about six years ago, we, in 2015, a group of creatives were invited by Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw, who is the co-founder of the African-American Policy Forum. And she is also one of the academics who, I guess, is given credit for designing the construct we call intersectionality. She invited a group of folks to Vassar, a university in upstate New York, to really consider what it might look like to utilize art and creativity, I guess, to create tools to fight really to use art as tactic. And she invited us to learn. One of the the pieces that was offered to us was this opportunity to create a town hall. And this town hall was focused on the Say Her Name movement, or at that time, the hashtag Say Her Name, which was really focused on the lives of women, cis and trans women who had been killed by police at a time when the Black Lives Movement was very much focused on the lives of men 
And so the statistics around women being killed, the stories around women being killed by police and just being killed across the board was really not making the news. The opportunity came that, you know, we know how to tell our stories. We know how to hold town halls and we know how to hold commissions and to to listen to each other and to listen to young people, to listen to young women about what was actually happening in the world. And so I was invited and was able to come back to Oakland, California at the time to help convene the Breaking the Silence town hall on girls and women of color for the Bay Area. And from that, we started speaking about artists as first responder as the platform because all of the topics that we discussed were discussed through a creative platform. So if we're speaking about education and being pushed out, Black girls being pushed out of school or being policed, if we're talking about intercommunal violence or interpersonal violence, if we were talking about displacement and gentrification, which is a huge issue in the Bay Area. It's a huge issue across urban centers in the United States, but we were focused on the Bay Area at the time. All of those topics were presented to community and folks were engaged in it through an art practice, whether that be through a theatrical skit, it'd be through a dance movement, be through theater or creating videos with your cell phone, all of that was going on. And so the platform unfolded because of our ability to like share this information and to gather this information and to be able to gather research and data from the community that says, you know, what actually is going on? (laughs) Really, what is it? So the six point platform uh, starts with public talks. There is also a print publishing aspect to the platform. Of course, there is exhibition, you know, art exhibitions. There are site-specific ceremonies, which means we show up, you know, at a particular place at a particular time to do ceremony, whether that be to wail or that be to build, to make something. There is also an artist residency aspect to Artists as First Responder, where we create intentional spaces for artists to have time in a particular location to think, to create, to rest. And then the sixth point are grants. So this regranting process, these mini grants or micro grants, there's mutual aid opportunities that have also sprung up. And that's called the reflection for artists. Reflecting mean, I see you, I see myself. I acknowledge the work that you're doing. And these artists are gifted, as it's called, general operating funds. And so that means you don't have to give us anything. You just please, you know, accept this money as an acknowledgement that we see the work that you're doing. And what we you know, learned over and over again in these last 18, 19 months, of course, is that we would not have been able to survive a so-called shelter in place if the artists had stopped creating the art. And so we continue to want to acknowledge and support and know that artists' work and arts labor should be lifted and celebrated as first responder work. I love that. I mean, I think what's there's so many powerful things about the platform. And I just love what you also just said about how, you know, it's like you're allowing people time to heal. This moment has been incredibly devastating for so many people and so many communities that to really not expect people to have to produce, you know, we always have to be on, we always have to be on our A game and to be able to come to a residency and have space to just do what you need to heal yourself, to have a creative practice space that you can explore new ideas and new ways, or also to get a grant, which is for your operations. So you could actually just pay yourself and take care of yourself versus like you have to make this thing. And the only way that will give you any money or honor you is if you make this thing instead of just being like, you do amazing work, we need you out there. And if we can get you healthy and whole and healed, then we know that you're going to continue to do amazing work. So I think that that's super unique as a model for being able to support artists really where they're at and really be responding in this time. So congrats to that, because that's incredibly powerful. I wanted to ask you as well, as a BIPOC arts leader and creative, how have you navigated this traditional arts world? I identify as a Black woman. I also identify as a queer woman. And navigating this traditional arts world, somewhere I made a conscious decision to not step 
fully into the so-called traditional art world. And I think when we're speaking about what tradition means, I think that means a visual arts world that says, I want to become an art star and I want to work in a museum and I want people to collect my work and I want to make a lot of money from, you know, people collecting my work and be, you know, on the front of magazines. I think that's one narrative. And there are artists who have done that. And I have friends and and colleagues who have done that, who are art stars and who are art curators as well. There's something unique to each person who calls themselves an independent curator. And that doesn't mean that we don't work or that I don't work with museums and with galleries. In fact, I have had two art galleries myself. I've been a gallerist and decided that I didn't really love selling art. I loved engaging the artist. I loved having exhibitions and being in community and and doing site-specific ceremony and, and diving in with your heart wide open. But I didn't have the heart to keep trying to push to sell the work. And galleries are a business. And so I've navigated in and out of exploring different ways of being an art dealer, different ways of being a curator, because it hasn't always been the so-called visual art in a gallery. Sometimes it has been poetry. I, I ran a poetry venue in Denver, Colorado for 15 years. And so poetry is very close to me. And a lot of my own healing work finds me returning to the word, or finds me returning to the written word and to the page and to the work and words of poets before anything else. So the navigation is like a timeline, you know, it's two steps to the left. It's sitting in the center. Sometimes it's two steps to the right. It's sitting in the center. And I wouldn't say it's back and forth, but it has been many things because I'm a curious person. And again, because I have the gift of knowing so many different kinds of creative people that I've been able to and invited to step in and be in conversation and convene intentional space and create space that allows other people to explore what it might be or what it might mean to like live as an artist. So you've said, you know, you've run multiple galleries. I know you've you've managed and run multiple spaces. I remember when you were working at Hub Oakland, maybe you could share just some of the spaces that you have run just to kind of walk us through a little bit of that journey. You're mentioning Impact Hub Oakland, which was an international co-working community located in downtown Oakland, California for eight years before it transitioned to another company and then another company. But Impact Hub Oakland was part of a a global network of co-working communities called Impact Hub. We were founded, there were seven artists, actually, who founded Impact Hub Oakland. We invited people to bring what makes them come alive. At the time that we launched in, say, in in 2020, at the time that we launched, there really wasn't anything like that in Oakland. There were some spaces in San Francisco where, you know, were very beautiful places. But, you know, Oakland had its own vibe and it really required that people from Oakland and people who live there felt invited and felt engaged. And so, you know, it was black and brown women running this co-working space in this retrofitted car dealership with this beautiful artwork, commissioned artwork by local black and brown artists. So every aspect of it was about bringing your most creative, dynamic, innovative self. So everyone worked for themselves, right, in the space. That was hands down probably the most innovative art project that I've been very proud of to be a part of that as a co-founder, the chief creative officer of that project. But before that, there was the Pan-African Art Society in Denver, Colorado. There were online projects. There was a first online poetry slam called podslam.org, which was created by this group called the Just Media Fund on iPods at the time. Remember iPods? (laughs) It was like little iPods. I do. (laughs) Yeah. And so some poets who are now international rock star writers like Sonia Renee Taylor was a poet who I followed and who we created one of the, probably the first video poetry slam online. And so I think I've traveled a lot of different places in terms of what it means to to create space and what it means to hold creativity and creative arts, you know, creative labor very dear to me, knowing that that's who I am and knowing that that's who we all are, that we come out of 
the womb of our parent as creative. And some of us are encouraged to walk that path and some of us are encouraged to do something else. But I think we all come out knowing that if you can hear or feel rhythm and music, any child will move their body to that, right? If you give any child who has a way to hold a crayon, a crayon on a piece of paper, they will draw you a piece of art and then they will hold it up and say, look, I did this. Because that's who we actually all are. You know, what a journey and a gift it's been for me to not have had anyone tell me that I couldn't do that. I have two sons. Both of my sons are very creative in their own right. I think artists make artists or artists beget artists. You know, I think if you if you have a daughter and you're an artist, they're probably going to be artistic in some way <laughs> that they communicate. Absolutely. I was so proud. My my daughter just painted her first painting. It's actually behind me. She did a painting and I was so excited. Like I created something that created something that's like the best thing I've ever, you know, the best, most magical thing I ever created. But, you know, I think that that's so beautiful just to listen to some of your trajectory because I think it's so true for when you don't fit into that traditional mold, especially as women of color, you have to forge your own path. And oftentimes people think like there's just one way. And I love hearing how you've done it in so many different ways. You're entrepreneurial. You're always reinventing yourself. You're trying new things because of your curiosity, because you take risks. It's allowed you to move in all these really powerful ways. So, you know, kudos to you. It's really, really amazing. You know, I wanted to ask you, because you work with so many different types of artists, what do you usually look for? in artists that you like to work with? Like, are there traits that they have? Aside from the work being good, what are things where you're like, I will work with that person and I won't work with that person? That's a great question. You know, it's not about the work being good. I think artwork being good is, is totally subjective. Do I feel something about it? Whether that be like, I don't like it and I have a, a strong visceral reaction to it or it makes me smile or it makes me laugh. And I have a, you know, that kind of reaction as well. I think it has more to do with honesty, being someone who does what they say they're going to do, being someone who is open to new things. So someone who is as curious as I am and someone who is willing to try something out that they haven't done. It makes me want to work with someone if they're having fun, if they're enjoying it. You know, if they're like a bitter, angry, maybe frustrated artist, that's not so much the energy that I want to be around. But if they are loving what they're doing, and honestly, I think if they are willing to share uh, in a way in which they're willing to teach someone how to do what they do, then their willingness to be generous with their practice and with their ideas, that makes it much more interesting for me to step forward to them. So it's not about their work being good. It's really about how does it feel and how do I feel when I'm around them? I love that. I, th I think that that's so amazing because I think as a young artist, I was under the impression, you know, people work with people because they're work is amazing. And then I started to meet all these people that were very difficult to work with. And, and I've curated over the years and I'm like, you know, that's not exactly that I don't want to be in that situation. I don't want to be anybody's mama. I'm already a mama. I don't need to be somebody else's mama, you know, and just like, is it pleasant? Do they follow through all the things, you know, aside from already, like I have to have that love for their work or the love for their vision, the love for their story. So I am so glad that you said that because I think it's just really important also for other creatives to hear just as a great reminder that like, you know, if you come with that truth and you come with your story and you just are a good person, you follow through, people will gravitate towards you. Mm -hmm. You're hitting on it because one is authenticity. And the other part around it is game recognized game. You know what I mean? It's like, I'm a badass. I know I'm a badass. And I recognize other badass. So when game can recognize game, it's like, yo, let's do this. Let's like, let's try it. We Maybe we'll get it done. Maybe we won't. But it has everything to do with follow through. Because you'll talk to your curator. You know that, you know, there's, we call it the artist flakeout factors. Like, I mean, I think it sucks, but artists have, and it's across genre. This artist flakeout factor, they will just be like, on it, on it, on it with you. And then one day they might just disappear, just poof. Like just, 
you know, I guess they call it, the kids call it ghosting, but I'm telling you, they will just go away. That doesn't work. It, uh, you, can, you can't, for me, you can't recover from that one. Yeah. With me. It's Absolutely. Like, yeah, you know, there's, there's no, we're on a, on a journey together. And then you decide one day, I just can't do it. And I'm not even going to tell you, I'm just going to go, I'm out. I'm out. You can't recover from that one. And you can't recover really well with me either. If you, you know, kind of like show your ass in the street. That doesn't work either, <laughs> you know. And maybe that's because I'm too old, you know. What I mean, to be like, no, you don't get, you don't have to. I'm not talking about some kind of like class thing or respectability politics. You don't get to show your ass in the street, not with me. It's like, eh, yeah. So you know, those those are some other things. When you were talking about Maya Angelou earlier, I was just watching some of her interviews the other day, and she was saying, you know, when somebody shows you who they are, believe them. That's like solid advice. Amazing. Yes. When they show you who they are, believe them. They know themselves better than you. You saw it. Believe them. And it's so, you know, it's just like you learn it throughout the years. And I totally, when, you know, listening to her say that, I'm like, of course, so fundamental. Yeah, Yeah, she said it. She said when they tell you who they are, believe them. And it's true because people do tell you who they are. They'll tell you, oh, you know, I'm a little, you know, I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Duly noted. <Yeah. laughs> Duly noted. Exactly. For many years, I traveled the world looking at African film and film from the African diaspora. I was the, the director of the Denver Pan-African Film Festival for seven years. And my children went with me to several countries in West Africa, to Europe. And, you know, Black people are everywhere and we're making film everywhere. And you got to see some real wild stories in the film industry, as you might imagine, you know, independent film, Hollywood film, these are very much the independent film folk. And some of them obviously uh, also work in in mainstream so-called Hollywood film, but you got to see a lot of flake out (laughs) and you got to see a lot of really devastating circumstances. You know, everything has an end point, right? So if you do this on the top end, on the bottom end, it's going to come out. So if you put it in crooked, it's going to come out crooked. It's just what it is. It's like, that's, that's the way it is. Yeah, absolutely. You know, speaking of traveling, how has traveling kind of impacted lessons learned about your creative process or about creativity and the arts? What have you kind of gained from traveling around? Well, you really understand that you think that your world is the center of all things grand and all things wretched. And you find out that it's just a blip on the screen. So traveling gives you a perspective that there are so many ways of living, so many ways of being, so many opportunities to do things differently. Depending on where you are, you might get some different perspective on the economy of things and how much things cost. One of the the many lessons that I've learned from traveling is how much do you really need to carry with you? I remember when we used to carry very large suitcases to go places. And then you see what happens now has happened is that the suitcases have gotten smaller and smaller. And now people travel for a whole month with a carry, a, you know, a carry on. And I just think that's amazing that we have been able to like scale down and really, I think, pinpoint what is necessary. And travel shows you that. It shows you that I really only need this many pairs of panties, this many socks, <laughs> a jacket, a hat, a scarf, a shawl, you know. And, you know, your little bag that you keep your, your toothbrush and whatnot in. That, that's what you need. But I remember that we used to have so much more stuff. What does travel look like now? I was just on an airplane three days ago. And you would think that there was never a pandemic. The airplane was packed. Every seat was packed. Every airport was packed. Other than having to wear a mask and then not serving alcohol on airplanes, Everything was back. (laughs) Everything was back to before, you know, we were struggling with this COVID-19 situation. And it was a little scary. But there was this weird kind of like normalcy. It felt familiar. Like, oh, okay, well, this is the one thing that feels normal again. And normal was a big problem. So, you know, I think that we are going to continue to see the impact of travel on us. And, And the flip of it, honestly, is that People made some different decisions around how they wanted to live their lives and decided that traveling or relocating to another country or living someplace away for a long stint of time was doable. 
that we shifted our priorities on what we wanted to spend our money on. And traveling, resting, and leisure became something more acceptable, psychologically more acceptable for many of us, many Black, Indigenous, Black, Brown people of color who have not allowed ourselves to go rest or allowed ourselves to spend money on doing nothing and allowing ourselves to do nothing and that be okay. So yeah, travel, traveling is really a new game right now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you talk about some of those shifts that people have gone through because of the pandemic and this recent time and the shutdown, what are some of the changes for yourself that you think, you know, are you spending more time now doing, taking time for yourself, doing nothing? Are you, you know, incorporating more of that into your very busy schedule? (laughs) I have, I have taken time to do nothing and to justify it. But the other thing that's happened around how I spend my time is that as a consultant, I've stacked my projects in a way that I can not have lots of meetings and lots of deadlines and lots of things to do all at once. And that that happens a lot, you know, and definitely would happen a lot where all the deadlines, all the writing deadlines, the grant deadlines, everything would be happening at once. And so this constant grind, you know, that people are very proud of, that I, I don't hold any pleasure or rah-rah banner that says I haven't slept in three days. And I used to. I used to, that was a, that was definitely like, I'm working so hard that I, you know, I don't take any time off and I can't go get my nails done or whatever. You know what I'm saying? That I don't do that anymore. It's being willing and able to sleep for more than eight hours, more than four hours has had to become normal for me again. And it feels just fine. I don't feel any guilt or shame around it. And I don't guilt or shame anybody else for sleeping or as long as they need to as, as well. You know, if we have to miss the meeting or reschedule it, that's what has to happen. That's just what has to happen. You know, some grace and some patience with ourselves first and to each other, we extend that to each other. That is the new norm. Yeah. I love it. I think that that's so powerful because in a similar way forever, when people would ask, how are you doing? I would always say, oh, I'm so busy. I'm so busy. I'm always, you know, it's like, and just could think about all the things that you have to do in the time. And now I really try not to leave with that anymore. Like, yeah, I'm busy. And that's a part of life. But also just like, talk about some joy and remember your joy and think about your joy and take time to go to the beach on the weekends. And I similarly have just been better at like, I'm holding this space for myself, some time for myself in the week and feeling like it's just as important as any other meeting that I had, where before it would be like that time is gone because something else needs to squeeze right in, you know? You were talking the talk right there. I really can reflect that, that I definitely lived that way. Someone would say, how are you? And you say, fine, and just keep going on and on. When you really aren't fine. So getting to fine, understanding what fine is for me, so that when someone asks me how I am, I actually can take a breath and check in with myself and say, whatever the answer is, I can reply with an authentic answer and say, well, you know, I'm actually a little tired or I'm a little sad, or I'm in the midst of, you know, I'm I'm a little angry with my kid or whatever. But I actually answer the question now. I don't just say I'm fine. And I definitely don't lead with I'm tired unless I really am tired. That was my go-to. What do you do? I'm exhausted. I haven't slept in three days and I've been working and I've been up all night and nope. Right. Absolutely. I love it. I love it. This is to the new, better, the new, better balance selves. I mean, you do have so many things that are going on though. Let's not, you know, there, there's definitely a lot. So I just was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your Black Joy Story Windows. Black Joy Story Windows is a four block long public art exhibition in downtown Oakland sponsored by the Oakland Central Downtown Neighborhood Association and the Black Joy Parade in partnership with Artists as First Responder. It features over 25 Black artists, and which range from AR artists, phot- you know, photographers, film artists, and muralists, and actual uh, also designers, fashion designers as well in the storefronts of about 28 businesses for this four block area uh, on downtown 
in downtown Broadway. So on Broadway, where so many of the businesses shuttered during the onset of COVID and shelter in place. And really downtown Oakland became empty. I mean, ghost town really became empty and was just kind of like blah. And so now we have these, you know, four foot by eight foot and 10 foot by 12 foot large scale images stuck onto the front of these these large windows, right? And so there's a lot of joy that comes from that. It was really prompted by the gift that is the Black Joy Parade and the 250,000 people that tend to like fall onto the streets on the last Sunday of February. And we couldn't do that, you know, in uh, 2021. And so how do we bring the joy to the people? It's like, how do we remind ourselves that Black joy can't be stopped, right? Lots of people didn't really know that their face was going to be put on the front of the building. It's been really fun and heartwarming for people to feel acknowledged, to feel seen in a place where they grew up and uh, a place where they've offered so much to community as creatives or as healers, as folks working in urban ag or dancers or whatever it has been. That launched in February 2021, and most of it is still up. And it's still up because many of the businesses haven't opened back up. And the ones that have, some of them kept the images on the windows. So that's been really fabulous. One of the interesting things about it is that there are four pieces on the street that also have an augmented reality aspect to them. Two of them are murals by our beloved Baba Emery Douglas, who was the former Minister of Culture. The Black Panther Party. Two of his murals were recreated by artists with his permission, of course, and that the Wakanda Dream Lab and the Black Terminus AR Collective put this augmented reality piece underneath. So you hold your smartphone up and then you get this film piece. So there's one Black Panther newspaper image that's on a window. And if you hold your phone up, you hear Bobby Seale speak about Black power which is really dope. Or you hold up your phone to another piece that was done by an artist named Amir Kadir. And the Wakanda Dream Lab put up this really dope kind of like augmented reality Afrofuturist story that's behind his mural. So that was something fun to try out AR on the street and see if people would pay attention, you know, to the QR codes. That's been really fun. It continues to be joyful for people and it continues to celebrate and bring to the forefront that not only is Oakland this this place where people are grappling with a lot of issues that are hard and a lot of grief, but that we are also like creating beautiful stories and narratives that are about joy and are about pleasure and that really relate to the fact that it's popping, you know, it can't be stopped. We have a legacy and a history of of making really beautiful stories, you know, that are shared around the world and that we're going to keep doing that. Yeah, absolutely. I love it. You know, I love, you know, shout outs to Emery Douglas. I got the pleasure to work with him on a mural project, the Oakland Palestine Solidarity Mural. And we were like, Emery, we want to, you know, we got some artists or they'll recreate your art. Can we put it on this mural? And he, and so he was like, yeah, I'm totally down. And he came on the first day and he's like, you know, I think I want to get up in the lift and do it myself. And so we're like, yes. So we, we totally we got Emery up on this articulating boom lift, like two, three stories in the air and had another artist in there just to help him kind of maneuver around. But sure enough, he was up there painting his piece and we're like, don't stop Emery Douglas. Watch out. He is amazing. He, you know, it's so prolific. So yeah, I always, I always love any chance I get to work with him. He's such a powerhouse. He is. And he's a delight. And he's a generous teacher still to this day. I remember the first time I went to Palestine, I was with a group of artists and they were saying, oh, you're from Oakland, California. Emory Douglas was just here last week. I said, Emory Douglas was just here? (laughs) They're like, yeah. I've been in places where he had just been, including Auckland, New Zealand, which is also pronounced Oakland. So they're like, oh yeah, Baba Emory, he was just here last month. You know, we're like, wow. So this this elder is still doing it. Do you understand? Still teaching on a global level, still traveling and continues to be generative and generous in, in all of his art practice uh, in, still in the name of the, the radical movement that was the Black Panther Party for self-defense and their modeling of love. 
their absolute modeling of survival pending revolution, but an absolute modeling of what love looks like. Absolutely. Absolutely. I wanted to also ask you about, you have this amazing project called Blatant. And I was wondering if you could share a little bit about that as well. Blatant is part of the public talk aspect of Artists as First Responder and part of the printing publishing aspect. So I have an ongoing conversation partnership with the Museum of the African Diaspora in San Francisco, where I sit for an hour or so in use with Black women creatives across the genre and geography. We talk about their work as it relates to rage, to joy, and to their art, of course. And from time to time, that also means that there's a presentation, but we we're looking at a specific kind of conversation that Black women are having. And as we speak about power, power sharing, as we speak about radical imagination, what I see as a Black woman and my colleagues, my friends, my comrades, my partners, is that Black women continue to be the folks who are saving the world, holding up the universe. You know, if you need something done, invite a Black woman (laughs) to do it. If you need something fixed, invite a Black woman to do it. I'm not saying that other people don't do that. I'm saying that I have an experience of watching Black women continue to like make sure that we are taken care of you know, make sure we are taken care of. There's that conversation that's happening. And then there's a a corresponding zine that goes with it. So that's, there's only been a couple of those. So they're rare if you're a person who collects zines and gets into that. So, you know, you can find those things on Artists First Responder. You can also watch all of the conversations on the Museum of the African Diaspora's YouTube page. And it's been really a gift to just sit and listen and muse on with other Black women creatives. Take up space, be loud, laugh, you know, kind of this uncensored, non-academic art talk that's happening through this museum. If I had to pick a couple of my favorite interviews, one of them would be Patrice Cullors. I had an hour with her, and Patrice Cullors is one of the Black women artists who is, you know, co-founder of the Black Lives Matter movement curator, creator in her own right, you know, lives in Los Angeles, California, and is a New York Times bestselling author. But, you know, so many people know her as this activist. And we actually just dug right into her art practice. Like she is a performance artist, you know, she is a social artist practitioner. And people are like, I didn't even know Patrice Cullors was an artist. I know because you're so rah-rah with the banner and she is all of those things too. But the first love is is the art practice. That was a really wonderful talk. And there was another talk that was really special. It was with Amara Tabor Smith and Dr. Savannah Shange that really spoke about site-specific ceremony and spoke about literary arts and theater arts and performance arts as healing arts. It spoke about the Black feminist imaginary and utilizing artwork and um, our bodies in movement to address and uh, attack issues in society, such as sex trafficking for young girls and young boys, which is a huge problem, a huge situation internationally, but in Oakland, California, which is number one or number two in the United States for turning out children, you know, trafficking children, that these are two artists who also address these issues in the academy with books and and this kind of like linear thinking, intellectual thinking, as well as through movement, dance and theater as well. So those were two of the conversations that are blatant. We're talking about blatant love, blatant art, blatant joy, blatant rage, like just undone and unfurled for all of us to behold through the the lens and the eyes of the Black womanist and imaginary. Yeah. I love that combination of joy and rage because it's so common that we hold both at the same time. And sometimes, you know, it's they get categorized as separate, but it's very often that we hold the same feelings at the same time. So I think it's really powerful that you're bringing them together under one veil of the conversation that can be so rich and so deep. As you're talking about all these different art forms that you work in and navigate through and curate and everything, I just wanted to ask you, what do you think is the power that art has to really change, to create change, to create ripples? What do you think that art really has the ability to do? I witness and experience art as an artist, as 
the opportunity for what can be. I witness and experience people who identify as artists, and, and I mean that across genre, as prophets and as sages. Every society needs those people. When a poet gifts you with lines of understanding from their perspective, maybe they've pulled stories from other aspects of the ecosystem, but when they gift you with that, you understand and you feel that they are speaking for you. You might not get all of it. You might be like, oh, that's just a little bit too obtuse for me, but you really understand that they have done something that says, I'm not going to be silent. I'm going to try to speak for us so that we know that we're not alone. Art shows us that you're not alone, you know, that we're together on this planet and that it shows us much like religion does where you came from, how to live where, while you're here and where you go when you die. That is what art is for me. That is the utility of it, the spiritual aspect of it, the visceral aspect of it, the social aspect of it. It's my honor to walk on the planet hoping that my work brings some pleasure, some solace to other people, and that it also hopefully disrupts you, that it shakes you from whatever your day-to-day John is. It's like, you know, it, it can't always be like that. You know, there's got to be more. There is more. Let me show you that there's more. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I love also that you've been talking so much about education and the power of education and how it goes so hand in hand with arts as well. Because I think, you know, like you, I used to hear these these little sayings about like, oh, that like it's like if you're creating art and you're doing so well at it, then maybe you don't need to be an educator. But I find that some of my favorite artists are artists that do both. And it it's an opportunity for their artwork to live beyond the moment of creation or beyond the moment of that one piece, the space that it's in and have this life outside. So how do you think education kind of goes hand in hand with the creative aspects of, of art? Well, you know, I'm married to a music educator who's also an academic. There isn't any separation between the creation space and the I don't want to call it the education space, but the opportunity to share and to teach someone how to do what you do is about legacy, right? It's about tradition and it's about legacy. I think music is a really appropriate genre to talk about in this particular conversation around arts education because we think about a piece and its longevity. You know, how long ago was that song composed? And then Maybe the composer is also the musician. And what do we think and what do we know about the livelihood, the lifetime, the footprint of that work? And so think about John Coltrane and A Love Supreme or, you know, his wife, Alice Coltrane and her work or Mississippi Goddamn, you know, by Nina Simone, how long, how far, or a song by Prince, anything by Prince. And his work, and I, I think about, you know, his last concert before he passed, you know, through the realm to the ancestors. He was in Oakland, California. We have to think about what it means to teach a child, as an example, how to read music. It's another language, right? How to read music, how to hold an instrument, how to take care of that instrument, how to clean it, how to oil it, you know, how to be tender with it, the relationship that you have with these instruments, the relationship that you have with the teacher. And so, again, because I had the gift of being a child who was taught how to read music, I've been around lots of musicians. My older son is also a musician, but he doesn't play musical instruments, but is a musician and an educator. My partner is an educator. I understand that this legacy, this history piece, that that particular art genre is very much part of how we tell each other how and who we are, how we are, who we are, what we're going to be, what we need to be, what we can be. It's important, you know, that we continue that legacy. Mm -hmm. 
Absolutely. You know, especially uh, oftentimes I think of all the people who taught me along the way. And so it's my responsibility to teach the next gen. You know, it's not my knowledge to hoard. It's the knowledge that we share because it was gifted to us along the way. So I just love that idea of the power of sharing those stories with the next generation so that they also have the sort of creative outlet. I just want to ask you, because I got to dive a little bit into your stories, all that you're working on or some that you're working on, you know, who are some of your favorite artists right now out there? Could you name just a few if you have? Who is somebody that's like catching your eye? It could be visual artists. It could be theatrical artists, musicians. Who's catching your eye right now? Hmm. There is this young, brilliant writer named Tongo Eisen Martin, a Black man and tall and tender and deep, deep water writer. He is the poet laureate for the city of San Francisco. He is dear to me, you know, and so, I mean, I continue to listen for his words and I continue to celebrate, you know, each award that he's given, each opportunity, each door that is open for him and the doors that he opens uh, he's the co-founder of Black Freighter Press, which is a publishing house as well. So Tongo Eisen Martin, look for him, look for his his books. He did get the American Book Award, I believe, two years ago. And recently, I got to witness him in conversation with our beloved elder, Dr. Sonia Sanchez, a conversation where the two of them really just read poetry together, read to each other online. If you want to find that, you can go to the Museum of the African Diaspora's YouTube page and just look up Sonia Sanchez, Tango, Eisen Martin, and be blessed. I promise you. I promise you. So he is an artist. There is an artist in Detroit, Michigan, where I recently relocated to named Tiff Massey, as in Tiffany, Tiff Massey. And they're metal worker, jeweler, welder, and public art just magnificent public art artist. So I'm looking at their work. They're also doing sound work, composing music videos, but really, really deep conversations around society and history that they're pulling out with their work. Some of it is abstract and some of it is not. So they're an artist that I'm interested in to continue to follow. And I have a a dear friend who I've known for maybe one almost 20 years, who is quite an art star from Durban, South Africa, named Zanele Mahole. They are a photographer and activist educator, very much celebrated, you know, in many spaces. But one of the things that's most poignant for me when I speak with them is, you know, we talk about gender and the gender bending and what has happened around who they are now and who they were when I met them. And just recently we were on a call and they were saying, you know, I am they, I call myself they because I don't come alone. And that was what was so important for me to hear it again. I don't come alone. I come, my ancestors come with me everywhere I go. My people come with me. So I am not she, I am not he, I am they because we come together. And that coming together is how my art practice shows up. And right now it shows up as, the photography that is so stark and blatant, black and white and thick and heavy. But there's also now these paintings that they're doing, which are all these colors and these large canvases. And it's like, whoa, when did you start painting? You know, just decided, okay, after 15 years now, I'm going to start doing painting. And it's like, huh, look at that. <laughs> it's like, just recreate yourself, you know, so... I love it. I love it. I love to see the spark in your eyes just light up as you describe their work and describe, you know, each of these artists, how much it speaks to your spirit. I think it's really, really powerful. So thank you so much. Big shout outs to all of them. Please look them up. Also, Ashar, how do people find out more information about you? Like if they want to follow up, if they want to just dig in, if they want to go into like a binge fest on everything, Ashar, how do they find more info on you? A binge fest. Well, okay. (laughs) My personal website is ashara.io, which is A-S-H-A-R-A dot I-O. And the nonprofit, social profit work is artistasfirstresponder.com. Artistasfirstresponder.com. 
just like that. And, you know, you can also join us and, and be part of the conversation with us on Patreon. So if you want to support in that way, you can also, you know, tap into all of the beautiful work that people are doing on Patreon and the ways in which we can support each other and become a patron on the Artists as First Responder Patreon page. Thanks for asking. Fantastic. And what about your socials? Are you guys on the social networks? How can people find you on social? Yeah, on Insta, it's Artist as First Responder. It is also Black Space Residency, which is the artist residency aspect of Artist as First Responder, Black Space Residency. And then my personal Insta is Blue Black Woman which I can't change because I've had it like forever since like my space, like since Hotmail, like forever. So it's Blue Black Woman spelled B-L-U-B-L-A-K-W-O-M-Y-N. Blue Black Woman on Instagram and on Twitter. Fantastic. Well, thank you, Ashara, so much for sharing your story with us today and being with our Not Real Art family. We really appreciate it. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Aaron. Have a wonderful rest of your day as well. Hey there. Thanks for tuning in. Please be sure to like this episode, write a review, and share with your friends on social. And if you haven't already done so, please press the subscribe button and follow us on Instagram at NotRealArtWorld.